good morning again. My name is Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary, and it's good to be with you uh, today, just to gather together and uh, open the scriptures as we continue in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, a study through the book of Matthew. Now, just before we dig into what we're going to look at this morning, let me recap just for a second. Uh, Pastor Jordan Michalski did a great job uh, teaching last week on the calling of Matthew. Um, and I feel like what Jesus said to the crowd, or, or really to the people who he was with in the home, when he said to them, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick, and comparing it to the truth that Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but came to call the sinners, I believe that that's a foundation of the gospel for us today. That's a foundation for our lives, and, and, and what Jesus was for, who Jesus cared about, and what Jesus came to do. And I like that, you know, that story is included among the miracle stories. If you, if you go through Matthew chapters 8 and 9, you're going to see all these stories of miracles, uh, calming the seas, uh, raising the sick, raising the paralytic, all sorts of amazing accounts of miracles. And sometimes you wonder, why was that story of Jesus calling Matthew a tax collector to follow him lumped right in the middle of all that? And I believe... That story was there because this calling on Matthew's life for him truly felt miraculous. It felt like a miracle. You see, tax collectors weren't popular. In fact, they were despised by many. They were known by traitors from their own people. But being asked to follow Jesus as one who was a tax collector, one who was despised and hated, would have truly felt like a miracle to this man. And so many in the crowd, or in this case, in that home that day, just couldn't understand this. And they had difficulty with Jesus. They were getting upset. They were very unapproving of who Jesus was calling to follow him on this day. And that's going to lead us into our text today. That's going to lead us into what we look at this morning as we look at the outrage and the frustration of the religious leaders. But before we fully get into that, let me start by asking each of us a question today. And here it is. The question is, how do you deal with change? How do you deal with change? Does the thought of change excite you? Does the thought of change make you happy? Are you one of those people who, when you hear that something's changing, you just get a lot of energy, you get excited, you're, you're, you know, you're stoked, you just can't wait for it to happen? Or does change perhaps bother you? Does change sometimes make you uncomfortable? Does change sometimes, you know, make you upset, make you angry even, if we can go that far? You know, maybe that word brings joy, but maybe for others this morning, maybe people like me, sometimes that word brings dread. And it's difficult, and you know that with change comes a lot of different things, a lot of different layers, and a lot of different change up to your lifestyle. And I ask this question, I start by asking this today, because this is what we are seeing happening in the book of Matthew. Jesus is coming, and he's changing a lot of the ways that religious folks are to see God, are to see others, and how they are supposed to shape their priorities. Jesus is coming and kind of blowing up their box of their religion, if you will. And he's doing things that many of them wouldn't approve of. He's doing things that many of them wouldn't ever think that God would be about, and we're at a point where it's starting to bother and it's starting to annoy the religious people and the religious leaders. And they're, they're getting offended at Jesus. They're getting taken back. And yet the change that Jesus is bringing here is not only important, but it's absolutely necessary for how we are going to relate to God going forward. 
And so while sometimes we can avoid change and things seem to still work out okay, there are other times where avoiding change is catastrophic. And so sometimes avoiding change can get us into things we never intended to. Let me use an example from the business world or from the retail world, world if I will. Blockbuster video, anyone familiar, right? Uh, anyone still miss renting videos? If you do, Movie Village on Osborne is your place. There's a commercial, okay? But uh, Blockbuster Video was once the biggest video rental business in all of North America. And many looked upon Blockbuster as that place that just crushed the competition. You know, when, when, when Blockbuster moved into the area, that little store had very little chance to not only compete, but maybe even to last in this business. And they were once like the giant, and they, Blockbuster was the place you went if you wanted to rent a movie, that's where you went to. Its dominance in the industry was unprecedented. Com at, at its peak in the early 2000s, the company was said to be worth over $5 billion. And it looked like smooth sailing for them. It looked like things were going well. They were on top of the video rental business. Everyone went to them. They were that big change, that big chain. You know, their advertising just happened by word of mouth. Everyone knew what Blockbuster Video was, but something was about to shift. Something was about to change. And we saw the, wind of change, the winds of change arrive on how people were consuming movies and digital and video media. And in 1998, Reed Hastings, a disgruntled Blockbuster customer who was upset with late fees and felt that he could do better with a new approach to movie rentals, started a company that was going to change how people watch movies. And some of you may have heard of that company today. It is called Netflix. And so he started this company in the midst of just being disgruntled and you know, not wanting to deal with late fees, not wanting to deal with a lot of the stuff that came with video rentals. And so Blockbuster, from a business perspective, really failed to see what would lie ahead. Technology was going to change the game. The landscape of the market was changing right before them. And yet, they couldn't embrace it. They couldn't embrace that, you know, these movies, these rentals were about to go online. They were about to go digital. They were about to go with the wave of the internet. And in the year 2000, this is an interesting thing I found out this week, they were offered the opportunity to buy out Netflix for a mere $50 million. In the year 2000, they could have bought out Netflix for a mere $50 million. And I say mere, not because it's mere to me. Trust me on that, okay? There's nothing mere about $50 million. But I say mere in this case because their company was worth $5 billion at the time. And here they had the opportunity to purchase and own something that had potential to change the game going forward. And they decided to pass on the opportunity and continue to pursue their model of video rental stores, of entertainment, and of late fees. Long story short, we all know how this turned out. I don't have to, you know, I'm not saying anything surprising here, things started to go downhill fast when media started to change. And the decline of their company was evident as more and more media began finding its home online. It was much easier for consumption. You didn't have to leave the house. Prices were very competitive. There was no such thing as a late fee if you couldn't get the movie back on time. And Blockbuster, in the middle of this, I think they began to see what was happening. They tried a few other tricks to keep the ship going, including a campaign to eliminate late fees. But the damage was done, and really, the world had changed. And the way people had done things had changed right before their very eyes. And as a business, they were left behind, closing their stores, and eventually filed for bankruptcy in September of 2010. And Netflix, as of May 30, 
of this year is said to be worth over $70 billion. I tell this story not to put salt in the wound of Blockbuster Video by any means, but because it illustrates what can happen when we fail to embrace change and we continue to live in the past or we continue to live with what has always been. We keep doing what we've always done. Anyone ever heard that expression before? But that's the way we do things. Hoping that the way we do things will create success in the future. And so as people, I'm going to go out on a limb here this morning and suggest that we are probably more than us, or more of us are probably prone to dislike change, wouldn't we? We're prone to dislike it. Some of us can embrace it, you know, but for some of us, we're always striving on something new. But for most of us, I'd say it's not so easy. I, I feel like change sometimes ruffles us, kind of gets in our ways. Let me give a couple examples of just even minor changes that um, throw us off sometimes. Anyone ever, like, see when Facebook changes, like, their template, and it, it's almost like the whole thing just went down the tubes, right? There's all these statuses out there like, oh, man, there's this new window here. What am I ever going to do, right? And even little things like that that we become familiar with, that we become used to, when they change, they bother us. Anyone ever go to your favorite restaurant? And you know, you're excited, you walk in there, and uh, you're getting excited to eat, and all of a sudden the host at the front tells you, oh, and we got a new menu. And rather than feeling joyful and excited, you're like, oh, did they get rid of the ribs, right? You know, you start thinking to yourself, like, is everything going to be the same? Is it, are, are things going to be the same with the menu? Am I still going to like this place? Perhaps moving to a new city or a new town. Anyone experienced that recently? That could be scary. That's a change. Everything looks a little bit different. You don't have your usual spots. You actually have to go out and explore again. You have to look up new things. Believe me, I've been doing this. Perhaps, and here's a big one. Maybe you've got a new boss at work or you've got new coworkers, right? And, you know, for some of us, that's a very difficult thing to go down. If things are going to look different. Maybe this boss is going to lead different than that last boss, and the thought of it is just tough to you because you know that change is coming. You know, as I was studying for this this past week, I didn't mean to throw this one in here, but as I was studying for this this past week, I went shopping, and I saw Good Host iced tea on the, on the shelves. Um, when I was going through the supermarket, and uh, save on foods, sorry, supermarket, what, what year are you in, Jordan? Um, but I saw Good House iced tea, and I, I like to buy a tub of this stuff every summer, but I remember seeing that it wasn't in this nice little tube anymore, but it was actually in a bag now. And there's a little sign on it that says, from Concentrate. And so I remember going home, opening it up, putting it in my glass, mixing myself a glass, and taking a sip and thinking to myself, it doesn't taste the same. What happened? You know, this stuff used to be so good. They had the market on mixable iced tea, and now this tastes terrible. And I, thought, I, I sat there as I was doing this thinking, aren't you talking about change this weekend in church? How easy is it for us to get annoyed by things that change? Even simple things, like bagged iced tea for crying out loud, right? We all experience change in our lives, and we all react to change in different ways. As I mentioned, for some of us, we welcome it. We get a kick out of it. We get energy from it. But for others of us, perhaps many of us, change can sometimes taste like a bitter pill. What about in the church? How are we, how are we with change in the church, do you think? Do Christians ever struggle still with change and with changing things? Does the church ever struggle with things changing? You can make your own conclusions there. 
But are we ever guilty of being those people who are longing for the older days or how we used to do things? And that's one of the things that's been such a blessing for me to be a part of this community is we're willing to look at things differently. We're willing to, to try new things. And I just appreciate that. I, I, I love that about this community. But as the church as a whole, just in general, worldwide, are, are, are we ever guilty of wanting to keep things how they were? Tony Campolo tweeted once, he wrote this, he wrote, don't worry church, if the 50s ever come back, we'll be ready. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh my gosh, there's probably a hint of truth to that. Are we ever still living in those days trying to reach people in 2017? I've been reading a book, a couple of books this summer by an author named David Fitch. I've been trying to kind of push it on the staff here over the last couple of weeks. But he, he wrote something here that really stood out to me, and this is more just something that kind of shocked me when I read it. Here's what he said. He said, the North American church is in a credibility crisis. We find ourselves in a culture that no longer sees Christianity to be true, relevant, or for that matter, interesting, yet we keep doing church the same way as if nothing has changed. We do it all seeking to reach the world with the gospel, but we discover that only Christians are showing up. Meanwhile, our neighbors in our world go on oblivious to the good news of Christ. We are looking more and more like people having a conversation with ourselves that no one else cares about. Ouch. I read that this past week and I thought, ooh, that one stings a bit. It got me thinking about the ways in which maybe I personally avoid change and run from it. Because change can be scary. Change can be difficult. Change can carry with it a degree of work, a degree of having to relearn things and, and, and unlearn some things that you've known for so, so, so long. With that in mind, let's read our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, your phones, or if you'd like to look at the screens, Matthew chapter 9, we'll start at verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked them, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Talking to Jesus. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And so Jesus is addressing some complaints. Remember, I started by saying that people were getting annoyed with him. They were unapproving of the people he was getting together with. They were upset at what he was doing. And they come up to him and they ask him a couple questions. You know, how is it that we fast, but your disciples do, don't? Even John the Baptist's disciples fast. And then Jesus kind of gives them an object lesson about what this might entail about them and their condition. You see, whenever someone famous walks into a room, anyone ever been in a place where someone famous walked in? Or you're sitting there maybe in a restaurant or in a, or in a theater, or, you know, I was at a music event the other day, and uh, the, the headliner uh, peeked out from behind the stage, and everyone was like, rah, right? And, you know, the poor person on the stage probably thought the applause were for them, but really it was because, you know, Beck popped his head out from behind the stage, and everyone was excited about it. But everything changes when a famous person walks in the room. Often people get quiet. In some cases, it's like this. You get, you know, the paparazzi out. You get the cameras out. You get people out taking pictures. Everyone takes notice. You know, who are you with? Think I can get their autograph? 
And the rest of the evening, you're kind of distracted by what's going on over there. And it really, what it does is it changes the atmosphere of the room that evening. 2,000 years ago, there was also someone who changed the atmosphere in the room when he walked in. And his name was Jesus. And when Jesus walked into the synagogue and the temple, things changed. And today, when famous people walk into a room, they usually walk into respectable places or upscale places, if I could say it like that. They are there because of their influence, because of how they dress or because of their power titles. Maybe they sold lots of books or records or movies. They draw attention to themselves, often in these nice, you know, classy, hip places. But Jesus was drawing attention to himself by going to all the wrong type of places. He was ending up in the places that nobody really expected him to go to. And at this point, his popularity was huge. Remember, we're in the miracle um, part of Matthew, where just miracles are happening everywhere, and buzz is growing about his ministry. And so Jesus was drawing attention to himself by going through all the wrong types of places, for hanging out with the outcasts and the sinners and the tax collectors. Remember, the tax collectors were aligned with Romans. They were the scourges of society. People who were rejected by society, these are the people that Jesus spent time with. And Jesus didn't fit their expectations, the religious leaders. He didn't fit into their categories, and so they were interested. Why do you spend time in these places? Why do you spend time with these people? Don't you realize that these people aren't worth spending time with, Jesus? That was the thought. But when Jesus walked into the room, things changed. Things changed. And so they were trying to figure out what was going on with this man. Jesus was doing a new thing in their midst, unlike anything they'd ever experienced before. Up until now, you did not associate with these kinds of people. You definitely didn't hang out with tax collectors, but Jesus began doing something new in their midst. And Jesus' new didn't fit their expectations. It was out of their categories. It was out of their box. It was unlike anything they've thought of before when it comes to relating to God. And so they asked him one more question while he was having dinner with Matthew and his friends, including tax collector. They asked him a question to try to figure out what is it that he was doing and why he wasn't doing what they'd expected him to do or what they'd hoped for. And so the question is about fasting. The question is, well, why don't your disciples fast? You know, we fast, the religious leaders. John's disciple, John the Baptist is, you know, points to his buddy. Their disciples fast. Why don't yours? And so a little bit of a background about fasting. Fasting was a symbol of hope and expectation. It was declaring that I'm dissatisfied with what I have today, and therefore I'm looking for something different. And so you fast, you, you, you put food aside, and you prayed, and you got really serious about seeing something happen. And the Pharisees and John's disciples, they, they fast because they are dissatisfied with what was going on in their culture, with what was going on in the temple. They're dissatisfied with what's going on in their relationship with God, and they were hungering for something different. They fasted because they were longing for something to change. And the Pharisees fasted a couple times a week, but what ended up happening in the middle of all this fasting is it took on a bit of a religious connotation. And rather than fasting for the way fasting was intended for, it really in some ways became about all the wrong things. And John's disciples fasted because they were looking for God's deliverance. They were dissatisfied with what they had. They were looking for the Messiah to come, and so they fasted and they prayed and they waited for it. And Jesus essentially answers this question by saying this. 
He says, when what you've been fasting for shows up, there's no need to fast. When what you've been fasting for shows up, there's no need to fast in that moment. In other words, the Messiah has come. He is here. The new has come in the room, present with you. And when Jesus walks into a room, things change. When Jesus comes into our lives, things change. Everything changes when Jesus walks into your life. When the bridegroom steps in, everything changes to the point where, you know, sometimes it's tough for us to even figure out how to fit in anymore. Unfortunately, sometimes our thinking is a little less drastic. Sometimes I think our thinking is like this, but Jesus, couldn't you just kind of, you know, save me from my sins and then just kind of hang out in my life and just kind of, you know, be there when I need you, when I need to call upon you, and don't make things too uncomfortable. Don't stretch me too much, God, you know, but I really want your salvation. Don't overly want to change that much, but, you know, with Jesus, we don't get that, do we? Because when Jesus walks into our lives, everything changes. And change is just something that we should expect. Change is part of being a Christian. Change is part of following him. Because he brings grace, and then all of a sudden, when you experience God's grace, your desires change, and your hopes change, and you say to yourself, you know, because I've, I've experienced his grace, I want to be more gracious myself. And maybe you start becoming more generous, and you become a giver, and you want to bless others, not because you have to, but because you want to. And then you experience his love, and in turn, you want to pass it on to other people because you recognize how great a thing it is. And it's not that it's easy by any means. You, you, you may think to yourself, I can't be that kind of person. I'm selfish. But God says, no, I want to bring revelation and change into your life. And you all of a sudden can become a gracious and generous person, full of light when Jesus walks into your life. Jesus, how is it that we fast and your disciples don't? You see, when we treat our walk with God as a measure of being fair <laughs> or, or evening the scores, we risk trouble. You see, following Jesus has never been about keeping a tally. It's never been, you know, about keeping a tally of what you're doing right and what other people are doing wrong. It's never been keeping score on how many times this person did something bad and you did something good, right? You know, it's not about being a GM. God doesn't need us to be his general managers. He can deal with each one of us personally. What we're called to do is follow him. And as we follow him, we're going to recognize that things are going to change. In verses 36 and 38, he says that no one, he uses this illustration of tearing a piece of old garment and putting it on a new garment. Or pouring new wine into old wineskins. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus is using some cryptic language that almost, you know, in a sense resembles poetry here. But what he's saying is that this new life, you can't fit into your boxes. It would be a little like buying a new wool sweater and then recognizing that you have an old pair of dirty work jeans with a hole in them. And then you say to yourself, oh, I could just cut out of this fabric and go and patch that fabric. And so you go, you pull out your new sweater, and you, you, know, you cut out some patch, and you, you, know, you put it on over the, the, the jeans. No one would ever do that, would you? You'd preserve the new. And the old, you'd recognize, is just kind of fading away. It's just kind of losing its wear time. You see, Jesus says, it's absurd to put me in your categories. It's, concern, it's absurd to put me confined to just the temple. It's absurd to box me in with your expectations. Because once you meet me, 
you will experience a different kind of new. And next, he uses an illustration of the wineskin. You see, when you poured wine into a wineskin, it would expand with fermentation. And the new wineskin would expand with it. But if you poured new wine into an old wineskin, then it's already expanded. And so if you cause it to expand any more, it's going to burst, and eventually the wine's going to be ruined. And no one's having anything to drink, right? And in using this illustration, Jesus is using the language of the people, and he's warning them that if we try to force Jesus into our old patterns, he'll burst them. We can't box Jesus in or tame him or make him more like us or make him more comfortable. We can't handle Jesus that way unless we allow him to change us from the inside out. That's where we need to be. And yet Jesus is too gracious to burst us. He wants to give us a whole new way so that we can receive him, receive his forgiveness, receive his blessing because his grace is new and it's fresh and it's a whole new thing that the people had never experienced in this story. And so for us today, living today, this language might mean this. It might mean that the ways that God has worked in your life in the past, maybe, or in the church that you grew up in, or in the history of your life, or maybe in your parents' life in the church, will not necessarily contain what God wants to do in your life today, or in the church today, or in the church going forward. It might look a little different. Do not confine God to what's normal to you. Don't confine him to what you're comfortable with. Have you allowed Jesus to come into the room of your heart where there's darkness and hurt? And have you been open to, yes, change me. Change me, God. I want your new ways. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul sums it up really good. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The new is here. Being made new in this scripture means just that, new. The idea that accepting God as your Lord and Savior and following him shouldn't surprise us as it's going to require a change of thought or a change of action or a different kind of obedience, maybe a different kind of lifestyle. Following Jesus comes with it a whole new way of living. And so in our original text this morning in the book of Matthew, Jesus says these words in response to religious leaders who were questioning him because Jesus' disciples weren't fasting like other people were. And they wondered, why not? Why are you different? Why this new way of doing things? Why can't you just be like everyone else? Why can't you just do what we've done up until now? But Jesus and his followers understood something that the others didn't. And they understood that if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. And like the scripture says, the old is gone. It's gone. It's not there anymore. But something new has begun. The new has come. You see, to follow Jesus meant all was new. Most people struggle with new. We're much more willing to compromise to take a little new with a lot of old, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. We like to add some new things, but we like to keep all that old stuff that we're used to as well. But Jesus anticipates this, and he makes it clear that you can't combine the two. You cannot, you must not. And new life in Jesus is just that. It's new life. It's a whole new way of doing things, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of moving forward. It doesn't mean that you add a few new things like a patch or another layer to your life, but that all things are made new 
in Christ. And so we can handle this new reality in one of two ways. We can dig in our heels and try to go back to the way it was, the way we used to do things, to complain about, you know, this, how this just doesn't seem to work for us, which isn't very constructive. Or we can explore this new reality today in our lives and what that might look like and what the possibilities might be for us if we're going to follow Jesus and build his kingdom and share his love with others. We can try to live in the past or we can live in the present that God has placed us in. We can think about what was or we can live in all that God has blessed us with anew. You see, 2 Corinthians, that passage there reminds us that the moment you say yes to God, you say yes to something new. Yes to transformation. You say yes to change. You say yes to things not being like they'd always been. You say yes to life to the fullest in Jesus. Yes to new opportunities, new friendships, new ways of treating people, new growth. Following Jesus is not doing what was back there older. Following Jesus is doing something new and what he has for us in the present. You see, for many people, Jesus caused frustration and was always going against that grain. And this is why they got upset with him. And this is why they questioned him. And this is why he was difficult for a lot of them to understand. You know, you might have even heard them saying, but you know, we've always done things this way, or this is how things have always been. And yet this new way of the kingdom wasn't going to be about how things used to be. But Jesus came to forge a whole new path, a new way forward, if you will. We have been made, if we've accepted him, we've been made new creations the scriptures say. You see, Hosea 6.6 hinted at this new covenant when, when the prophet said, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, up to this point, it was all about sacrifice. It was all sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. If I need atonement for sins, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to, you know, get an animal and we're going to sacrifice right here, right now. But Je Jesus embodied these words, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This new kingdom that Jesus has come to establish will not be a new law or no religion as much as it's a new relationship and a new way of seeing everything. And that includes how we're going to relate to God. And that's what annoyed people, is that he was changing the way that we related to God. We didn't have to go through a middleman no more, but we can go straight to him. And he came straight to us. And that was difficult for the people at the time to get. And maybe in some ways it's difficult for us to get. And I, I, as I was preparing for this this past week, I asked myself the question, why does change bother us anyways? And I, a couple thoughts I had is maybe our way of doing things can be improved upon. So maybe there's a pride element that comes with change. That, you know, it's, dang, maybe there is a better way of doing what I've built here for the last 20 years. Maybe it seems like a lot of trouble to start doing things a new way. So maybe there's a comfort element in change where we, you know, we're comfortable there. This is a good, this, the ship's running. Why change it up now? Why, why make things uncomfortable? Why, why bring extra stress and added things into our lives? Or maybe we're set in our ways or our routines. Maybe if you're like me, you love your routines. The, the, the trouble with that is that can sometimes make us idle, can't it? But I love my routines. When my routine gets set off, I notice it. And I notice it big. And it frustrates me in the moment. And I have to watch my heart sometimes. Because we can get set in those ways. And so when talking about change, there's two distractions that I feel like we can find when we talk about change. Here's the first distraction. The distraction of comfort. 
The old is a place of comfort. Sometimes that old way of doing things was a place of comfort, and you can become comfortable even in the things that aren't good for you. You can become comfortable even in things that are not necessarily good for you. You can become comfortable in your sin. You can become comfortable in your relationship problems. You can become comfortable in your apathy towards other people. We can become comfortable in just going to church and not necessarily doing any more. And it becomes easy for us to justify this type of living. And we can say things like, well, you know, this is just who I am. Who's ever thought that before? Well, that's just who I am. That's just the way I live. Maybe, let's just use an example today. Maybe, maybe, maybe someone would say, you know, I've got a temper, but that's just who I am. That's the way things have always been. I can't change. I can't do anything about it. That's just who I've always been. Always been this way. And when we, when we talk that way, when we think that way, when we live that way, what we essentially do is we close the door on the idea that perhaps things can be different going forward. Don't we sometimes put ourselves in a box and identify ourselves with these kinds of things? Our weaknesses, our shortcomings. Do we ever become comfortable there? And I guess the bigger question is this morning, will we allow God access to the places where we have become comfortable? Will we let him enter those places and bring something new into our lives and perhaps a new way for us to live and move forward? And instead of having the mindset, this is who I am, you know, I don't do that kind of stuff, even though I think you're asking me to, I'll never be able to, and having that kind of mindset, what if Jesus wanted to bring change even into those things that we've always done? And what if he could? And what if he could walk with you in that? And what if that was a process? And what if maybe, you know, you take five steps forward and maybe a couple back, but what if the journey was all worth it? What if the newness of life was something worth pursuing? Because the truth is this, when Jesus walks into our lives, one thing needs to be known for sure. Things will be different. Things will be new. Things will not look like they once did. And the distraction of comfort can distract us because we're in love with the old sometimes. We're in love with the patterns that we know. We're in love with what we know. We don't want to break out of it. It's comfortable. It's safe. It's predictable. And so comfort can become a distraction for us. Second distraction. The second distraction when we talk about change that we can run into is, this, this, is this the distraction of excitement. Some of you probably knew that this was coming up eventually. And this is almost the opposite of the first one. The distraction of excitement comes from the love of new. And the love of next, just always wanting to change everything all the time. Love of new things coming out. And sometimes it's, it, it's, it's not even rooted in much except for boredom. Anyone ever met someone like this? Where everything's just new, 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 new. And I just, I want it new, I want it new. And you, you, you don't even know why. What's the foundation behind that? Why are you thinking that way? And I think I need to caution here and say that when Jesus was bringing in a new way, it was a different kind of new. And I need to state that. Because there are some people who love new stuff so much that, you know, whenever the word new is used, you just go, well, sign me up without even thinking about it. But Jesus' new was rooted in the truth of God and the truth of what God had for us and wants for us. And if we fall in love with new in the next, and we fall in love with fresh things because we live in a society that, where we make everything expendable, you know, we fall in love with these kinds of things. And so let me, give, let me just throw out some thoughts here. You know, it's just this idea that if you don't like your house, well, then just knock it down and build a new one. If you don't like your friends, well, just get rid of them and find some new ones. 
you know, you can find them online. You can find them anywhere. Sometimes, you know, we, we sometimes exchange friends maybe, like commodities sometimes. We don't like our current car. Well, there's always a deal for a new one out there. And you'll be in love with your new car until the next model comes out, and you're like, oh, man, that 2018 looks awesome. And I'm really calling myself out here when I say that. And then you'll be like, oh, right? And that, that's the thinking that we get set up for in this world to some extent. That's what marketing's driven on. Think about computers. Maybe you've just bought a new computer this week. Well, guess what? It's already behind the times, okay? It's already old. There's something new being worked on. Next year, you're going to be like, oh, I want this new one so bad. We've moved on. Yours is officially old when you set it up, right? And, you know, sometimes we, we have that mindset in our society where we find contentment through catalogs. You, you may be satisfied with the things that you have in your house until the next set of flyers comes in and you start seeing new products and new sales. And there's a, sometimes this excitement that comes with new and we just want new, 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 new. And we think, I just got to have that, this need to have the new and the next, and it's not necessarily rooted in anything truthful. You know, it's, we just had a baby 10 months ago. It's ours getting older now. But it's unreal, the new stuff that are always coming out with that babies can wear while they sleep, right? Which I found out that babies really have no opinion on, okay? It doesn't matter to them what they sleep in, per se. They don't care about it. They're not necessarily worried about it, but we sure are. It's the new. It's the next, right? And in some ways, if we live this way, this can cause big distractions for us in how we live. Sometimes we get distracted even with well-meaning things, right? We go to the Christian bookstore. You know, we look for this book, this new idea. If I just pray this way, fast this way, live this way, then everything's going to change for me. You know, if I just do this, go to this conference, read this new book, you know, I will see God. And don't get me wrong. I'm not against books. I'm not against conferences. I really enjoy those things. I enjoy those things. I'm actually even quoting from some of them this morning. But the answer isn't simply in those things alone, but the answers we are looking for are found in Jesus himself. And if he doesn't show up in our lives, then it's all for none. We don't need another law. We don't need another set of rituals. We don't need another set of rules. What we need is the newness of Jesus' presence in our lives. Amen? And when Jesus shows up in your life, you walk with him, and things are different and so here's a question. Do you experience Jesus afresh in your life daily? Do you make time for it? Are you mindful of the fact that he is constantly with you? Because when Jesus shows up, everything changes. And we're not looking for a quick fix here. How do I become a better person and do this and do that easier? No, what we're looking for is we're looking for Jesus in our lives because the bridegroom is the one who makes the party worth going for, right? Makes the party worth going to. And when he's in our life, things, possibilities open and are endless. When he shows up in the room, everything changes. When he shows up in our lives, nothing is the same. Life is about our relationship with him, following him, being with him, going where he goes. That's what we're looking for. Our desire needs to be to meet and walk with Jesus. And when you do this, one thing you're always going to find out is that there will be new things and new experiences that come your way. And some of them will be strange, and some of them will feel odd, and some of them will feel unfamiliar, and that's all right too. He's with you.
and he walks with you through them. And it's going to have an effect on your life when Jesus walks in. And I'm just throwing out some examples this morning. But for some of us, you know, the effect when Jesus comes into our life, it might change the way we do things a little bit. It could sometimes change our job. For some of us, it may change our attitudes towards our jobs. And maybe rather than going to them upset every day, maybe we go with them knowing that whatever we do, we're doing it unto him as well. And we become more mission-minded in our jobs. You know, maybe it'll change our attitude towards our coworkers, towards our bosses. Erratically shifted because of this new thing Jesus has began to done in my life. Because we don't exclude Jesus from our lives. We don't compartmentalize him. We don't only bring him out on Sunday. But when Jesus comes into our lives, everything changes. We're a new creation, and he desires not just parts of us, but he wants all of us. And so maybe when you come to Christ, you realize that, you know, you're radically called to a new way of living, and you go home one day, and the kids look at you, and they're like, you know, like, who are you? <laughs> who are you, Dad? Who are you, Mom? You know, you don't get so upset anymore. You, you, you spend more time here, you know. And in a lot of ways, those are small victories. That's the kingdom. Kingdom in little ways like that, because our relationship with Jesus changes us, and people take notice. We become new from the inside out. And so the key question for us today is, how do we begin to walk in this? How do we begin to walk in this relationship with Jesus so that we become marked as a little bit different, as a little bit unusual? Because in our story in Matthew, the disciples themselves didn't fit the crowd's expectations either. The disciples were quote-unquote misbehaving and not doing things the way that religious people were supposed to do things. And of course they didn't fit the expectations of the crowd. That should make complete sense because they were following someone who was unique. And that was Jesus. And because they were following Jesus, that made them a little bit unique themselves. And it was noticeable that they weren't like everyone else. And as we become followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to begin to stand out a little bit. You're not going to have to force it and ask yourself, well, am I standing out today? That's not where I'm getting at here, okay? But you just will because you are relating to him and he's with you. And so what are some ways in which we can begin to be changed by this different kind of new that Jesus wants to bring? Number one, recognize your distractions. Begin to recognize what distracts you. Do you get stuck in your rut? Maybe you like pattern and routine. This is who I am. Please don't ask me to change. God, I will work within my parameters I accept, but otherwise I don't go outside those. If that's you, I want to encourage you this morning to offer that to Jesus. And offer him access to work in your life in a whole new way. And say to Jesus, you know, I invite you to challenge my ways this morning. I invite you to challenge my mindset. I invite you to challenge the boxes that maybe I have put up around what this is supposed to look like and what a relationship of living with you and following you is supposed to look like. We all probably have our ruts of some kind. And if we allow him to, he desires to enter our lives in a new way, a different kind of new, and he will invite you to participate in something that's different and life-giving. Secondly, another thing that we can do is to cultivate the practice of waiting. I had to quote Tom this morning. He doesn't get up here too often in the life lessons. But sometimes the waiting is the hardest part, right? It's difficult. This is not something that our culture gives us or even really encourages of us. We have a culture full of noise, full of overwhelming information. But we need to create a place and cultivate a practice of waiting on him. And not just speaking to him, but allowing him to also speak to our hearts as well. 
Sometimes we just got to turn the music off, the news off, the TV off, the noise off, and say, you know, while I enjoy that stuff, God, I want to connect with you today. He's you known we can even be distracted by good things. I mentioned it earlier, right? It's even good things that can sometimes take our attention from him. We need to practice the art of waiting on him. Number three, we must break fear, <laughs> sorry, break free <laughs> from the fear of change. For some of us, we've become comfortable about what church was like for our parents or what we experienced as kids, but we can't live there. We cannot stay there. We shouldn't stay there. We need to discover what it is that God is desiring to do in our lives today, in 2017, and how we can be a part of that work that he desires to do in our hearts. You see, we can't have someone else's relationship with God. I can't have another person's intimacy with the Father, but I need to find my own. I need to have my own relationship with God, my own intimacy with him. I can't live off someone else's. David Fitch again reiterates this thought when he says change is needed, yet over time, instead of changing our behavior, we develop reasons to keep things going. Do we ever do that? Our beliefs, together with the way we practice them, become an ideology. Soon we lose touch with the reality that brought us together in the first place. May we never replace our relationship with God and following him for, for practices and traditions. Can I just say that? We, may we never put those first. May we never settle for surface when Jesus, when the Lord wants to take us so much deeper into things with him. I could say it like this this morning. In some ways, if we're going to change, we must be willing to defy tradition a little bit. Because, and, and, and you should expect critics when you do it. And that's just a natural part of it. You see, and tradition isn't always bad. Hear me out. But, you know, when it becomes your creed and it becomes your whole life motto, then maybe you've missed it at that point. Jesus is just as present here in 2017 as he was in 1950, like we read earlier, or in previous years. The world hasn't gotten too far ahead of Jesus. I think sometimes we have this idea that the world has just gotten so far ahead that can Jesus keep up? He can keep up. His message is just as important, just as powerful today as it has ever been. Just as relevant, just as meaningful, still able to transform lives, homes, and communities. And I believe that with all my heart. But sometimes, in order to get there, we have to break free from the fear of change and changes that God wants to do in our lives, personally. And finally, the last point I'm going to make this morning is that we can never put limits on what God wants to do. We dare not put limits on what God wants to do. We have to embrace the fact that as new creations, everything changes. The old's gone, the new's here. Let me affirm this, though, because I don't want anyone to mishear me this morning. <laughs> So let me affirm this thought kind of as we're coming to, you know, a close here. The gospel message itself never changes. Can I say that? But our methodology will. Our methods in carrying out that message, our methods in, in, in going out and giving that message will. It should, it needs to, it must. But the gospel message itself stands firm. And so this requires of us that we begin to understand our times and just seek new ways of living and sharing and loving people with the message of Jesus because this message today is as powerful today as it ever, ever was and has been. And that's an encouragement for us today as we leave here. That this message is powerful today, is relevant as it ever has 
been N.T. Wright at the end of his commentary on this portion of the scripture. I'll let him kind of have some of the last words. He says, the times were indeed changing, speaking of the story in Matthew. God's new world was being born, and from now on, everything would be different. The question for us is whether we're living in that new world ourselves or whether we keep sneaking back to the old one where we feel more at home. Because sometimes the old and the familiar does feel more like home sometimes. But the gospel wasn't preached to make us comfortable, but rather so that we would advance God's kingdom. And so in what ways have we perhaps been distracted by comfort and excitement? And so I'll end with this question. What are your next steps? What are your next steps in continuing to follow and embracing the new things that God wants to do in and through your life? Maybe you need to set aside time for him throughout this week. Maybe you need to make sure that you're making that time daily to meet with him. Maybe you don't know what he wants of you because you haven't set that time aside. Maybe your next step is to begin to serve, is to begin to, you know, invest in this community and the community out there and just continue to do what he wants you to do. But I want to say this, that what Jesus came to do was meant to bring something new and different in our lives. And so let's not stay in the old, but let's continue to push forward. And I'm not saying that we're always doing that, but I want to encourage us as more of a mind check that each one of us needs to allow God to do in our heart what he wants to. Amen? So I leave that with you today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. And I thank you just for your love, God, and uh, for the new things that you're doing in my life and in the life of each person in this community. Thank you for your presence. Thank you just for your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us just to embrace the new things that you desire to do in our communities, in our homes, in our lives. And so, Lord, we come before you today, and we ask for your help, and we ask for your encouragement. We ask that you would strengthen us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord God, because a lot of the times, Lord, we fear, and we walk slower than we want to. So would you guide us today? Would you strengthen each one as we go today? Would you encourage each person in this room today to go out and begin to live life anew with you? And thank you, Lord, that you walk with us. Thank you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On your way out this morning, before I do the blessing, I'm just going to make mention that we're going to be handing out cards to everyone at the doors as far as our sit one, serve one challenge as we move back to two gatherings in the fall. We're going to be moving back to two gatherings on September 10th. And so perhaps maybe for you, this is very much a part of your next steps. But I encourage each of you to prayerfully consider where you can be involved as we continue to move forward in the fall. And um, at the door, you'll be getting some cards out. Make sure to hand some of those out. But can I have everyone stand this morning? And I just want to leave us here on an encouraging note. And uh, in the ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. So if you'd like to receive a blessing this morning, please just extend your hands. And here it is. Lord God, we rejoice in your greatness and power, your gentleness and love, your mercy and grace. Thank you for the new life in which we now live in. Thanks to you. And so enable us by your spirit to honor you in our thoughts and our words and our actions to serve you in every aspect of our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us today and uh, be encouraged as you go. See you next week.